Well, six-year-old Tommy attended his first grade Bible school class every week, and he loved his teacher, Mrs. Jones. Mrs. Jones did a great job of telling Bible stories, and she would always end her class by saying, Boys and girls, the moral to the story is... And Tommy enjoyed learning about the moral of each Bible story. But when he entered second grade, he moved up to a new Bible school class taught by Mrs. Smith. And Mrs. Smith told the Bible stories very effectively, too. But she never ended by giving a moral to the story. After a few weeks, Tommy's dad asked him how he liked his new teacher. Tommy said, Mrs. Smith is great, Dad. She just doesn't have any morals. Well, I'm glad that the stories of Jesus have morals. They have lessons. They have application for us, including the one in our text today, as we continue our journey walking together through the week. The final days of Jesus' life on earth, and now we're in the second day of that dramatic week that includes the most important events in human history and some of the Lord's most important teaching. So again this week, we're going to observe what He did, and we're going to overhear what He said in the first century, even as we lift out the life lessons vital to our faith in the 21st century. And in our passage today, we're going to look back-to-back at a miracle that contains a parable and then a parable that contains a miracle. But before we do, let me hold up a single sentence that contains the message for this Lord's Day. So far, we've had three of these sentence sermons in our series called The Week. You remember the first one was that we must live our lives for an audience of one. And then two weeks ago, it was, you'll get through this. And then last week it was, when Jesus comes into our lives, things change for the best. So here it is today. You'll live life without regret if you are fruitful and if you are faithful. I want to spend our remaining time together underpinning this exclamatory statement because none of us wants to live with regret. None of us wants to one day wish that we could go back and have a do-over in life. We want to look back on our lifetime with satisfaction, not dissatisfaction. We want to look back on our lives with fulfillment and not disappointment. Now, let me say that I, I do believe that God in His wonderful grace can restore what the locusts have eaten. That is, at whatever age we surrender to His love and lordship, he can save us, He can bless us, He can change things for the best. But it's so much wiser, it's so much wiser to stop now long enough to do what the psalmist resolved to do in Psalm 119, verses 59 and 60. He said, I considered my ways, I have turned my steps to your statutes, I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. So, today... Let's consider our ways. Let's turn our steps to God's truth, and then let's conform our lives to it. 
Well, in this final week, Jesus spent his days in the city of Jerusalem teaching in the temple courts. And then each evening, he would walk back to Bethany to spend the night. Now, Bethany is a little over a mile away from Jerusalem. It's on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And we don't know for sure who Jesus stayed with in Bethany, but we do know that he had good friends there, so he probably stayed with them. And then each morning, Jesus and his disciples would walk back over the crest of the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, and then back up into the city of Jerusalem. And I've actually taken this walk, and I've seen this surreal, panoramic, awe-inspiring view of the holy city. It is something. Well, let's go to God's Word. Matthew chapter 21, verse 18, and here's where we pick up on the action. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered, and the disciples saw this, and they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe me, you believe you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, when I started out in the early part of this week, I did not like this text. And by the end of this week, I love it, and I'm so excited to share with you what it says. And true to my word, I want you, first of all, to see a parable in a miracle. Here's the miracle, cursing the fig tree. And it is a parable of fruitfulness. So as Jesus walked along, he was hungry. He went over to a fig tree by the path, finding it had nothing on it but leaves. He cursed the tree, and immediately the tree withered. Now, it seems a little out of character for Jesus. It looks like an angry reaction to his hunger pangs. looks like it was prompted by frustration. Looks like maybe it's an impulsive and frivolous abuse of his miracle working power. But in order to understand this passage, you've got to know a little about the fig tree. Fig trees are very common in the Holy Land, and fig trees are mentioned some 60 times in the Bible. They are very unusual trees in that they can produce as many as three crops of figs in a single year. And when the new leaves appear, there are also fruit buds that appear, and they are edible. Although they're not the fully formed, ripened fruit, they're edible. But this fig tree had only leaves, no buds, so it was barren. The fig tree was deceptive because the leaves promised something that the tree was not going to deliver. They promised fruit, but there would be none. So, Jesus cursed the tree. And the environmentalists, especially the tree huggers, probably object. A couple of things here. 
Number one, if Jesus, the Lord of creation, wants to curse a tree, I feel like it's his prerogative. Don't you? Secondly, Jesus performed this miracle to serve as a parable. You see, the fig tree in Scripture is often a symbol of the nation of Israel. So Israel was like this fruitless fig tree. They had all the outward signs of spiritual life, but no fruit. They were keeping the law. They were very religious in every detail, but they had no fruit. Israel had been given every advantage by God. They had received His personal attention and redemption from the time of Abraham forward. They had received the Word of God. They had the prophets of God. They had the temple of God. They had everything for a bumper crop, but they remained fruitless. They did not recognize Jesus as their Messiah and King. They were spiritually barren. So the cursing of the fig tree was an object lesson. Over the next few days of the week, Jesus would be in perpetual conflict with the religious mafia. And outwardly, they looked impressive, but inwardly, they were empty. And we know the immediate application of this miracle because Jesus gives us the bottom line in the very same chapter, down a few verses to verse 43. Jesus said, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So you see the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're all loaded with leaves, ceremonies, creeds, history, tradition, reputation, rituals. They had it all in abundance, and they loved calling attention to it. But they were without love for God, and they were without personal faith in Jesus. So that is the specific application to Israel. But as you might have guessed, there's also some relevant application for us as Christ followers in two basic areas. And number one, the area of hypocrisy. You know, the first mention of fig leaves in the Bible is actually Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Adam and Eve had lost their innocence. They realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves. And there's been, been a lot of humor about the fig leaves. They hid from the Lord God. It's in the text of Scripture. They tried to cover themselves with fig trees, cover their shame with fig leaves, and they hid from God. But this covering was not adequate, so God covered them, you remember, with animal skins. And the first death in the Garden of Eden was to cover the sin and shame of Adam and Eve. And we don't know what kind of animal died. It doesn't say, but I imagine when we get to heaven, we'll learn it was a lamb. So when the Lord examines our lives, what does He see? Lots of foliage, no fruit. Lots of fig leaves that conceal the fact that inwardly we are estranged from God, alienated from God. This miracle of Jesus is a parable. That is, this miracle holds a lesson for us. And here it is. Don't remain in a place in life that you have to keep hiding who you are. 
And don't just fake it spiritually. Jesus does not want us to go through the motions. He does not like the outward demonstration without the inward devotion. And in a couple of weeks, I'm going to drill down on this even more when we get to Matthew chapter 23, and Jesus pronounces a whole series of woes on the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. But we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful not to give them the back of our hand unless we're honestly sure there is no pretense in us. So by way of personal application, we want to resist hypocrisy. That's one thing we want to learn from the withered tree. Something else we want to resist is unfruitfulness. A genuine Christian is a fruitful Christian, and there are three basic areas where God expects us to produce fruit. Here they are. Number one, in our inner life. That's a place where we are expected to bear fruit. How do we do that? Well, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist admonishes, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So the way we bear fruit in our inner lives is our inner posture must be maintained as one of humility and one of submission to the Lord. Jesus called it being poor in spirit, broken on the inside. So like Isaiah of old, we say, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. So having that posture of inward humility, inward submission. And we might also want to ask ourselves if the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is showing itself in us. In other words, is the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Is it showing itself in us? Producing fruit is a matter of maturing spiritually. It's a matter of growing to look and to sound and to act more like Jesus, who said in John 15, it'll happen. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. So we can bear fruit inwardly. How else can we bear fruit? Well, by winning souls, by saving souls. Now, I know this is an outdated expression, but it's right in the text of Proverbs 11:30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And he who wins souls or saves lives, and that's what happens. When you win a soul, you save a life. Whoever does this is wise. It's a way that we bear fruit. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus addresses each of the seven churches of Asia Minor in sequence. And again and again, the first thing the risen Lord says is, I know your deeds. I know your works. Well, what's he talking about? He's clearly talking about their efforts to disciple the nations. That's the first thing he looked at in the church. He examined their fruit. He wanted to know whether they were disciples making disciples. So, this is our fruit. This is our mission as a church. This is our reason for existence. But we've also got to personalize this. We've got to ask ourselves, am I 
reproducing after my kind? Am I a disciple making other disciples? I wonder if you've ever noticed all the medically related people in our church. We have just a ton of people who are related to the medical field. There are nurses in the hospitals or doctors. Why is that? Well, it's because through the years, there have been disciples making disciples in our hospitals, in professional offices. I was thrilled also to see a picture of our growing point man ministry from last week. Take a look at this. This is a ministry that is bearing a lot of fruit. Our military veterans intentionally reaching out to other vets. That's what it means to bear fruit. So utilize the relationships you already have. Capitalize on the friendships that are already in place in your life. And one of the ways that Jesus expects us to be fruitful is not only in our inner lives, not only by saving souls, but also by doing good, just doing good. That is a way that we bear fruit. The Bible says that Jesus went about doing good, and no one lived a more fruitful life. And look at this verse in Titus chapter 3, verse 14, that says, And let our people also learn to maintain or to do good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Now, there's a little formula that we use around here. We quote it quite often. Here it is. Good works produce goodwill, and that gives us the opportunity to share the good news. Now, you can personalize that. Good works. We all know how to do good works. Well, the good works that we do for others produces goodwill, and that goodwill gives us an opportunity to share the good news. And we do well to remember that God's Word gives us a solemn warning about living a selfish life, a fruitless life. Matthew 3.10, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So remember, you will live without regret if you are fruitful. So we've seen a parable in a miracle. Now what about a miracle in a parable, moving a mountain, that's, that's the parable. It is the miracle of faithfulness. Let me explain. Look at the words of Jesus. I tell you the truth if you have faith to do and not doubt. You can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for. In prayer. Now, this is such an amazing promise. We're tempted to simply spiritualize it and drive on. Some people think his words here are only symbolic, they are not literal. But I want to tell you, there was a time in history when God literally moved a mountain in response to faith and prayer. Now, I am always careful to research illustrations because there are so many urban myths floating around out there. But this one is real. It happened in Egypt a little over a thousand years ago. And as you know, God has a pretty good track record for performing miracles in Egypt. Well, at that time, just as today, there was a Muslim majority in Egypt. And the imam or 
the Muslim high priest, decided to challenge a group of Christians on their claim that Jesus was God. So, the imam called in Pastor Anba Abram, and he gave him an ultimatum. And he read this passage that I just read to you about mountain-moving faith and prayer. And the imam pointed out a literal mountain right over there. And he challenged the Christians to move it. And if they failed to do so, they would be given the choice of either death or conversion to Islam. Well, the Christians came together, and they fasted and prayed for three days. That was their limit, three days on the third day, on the final day. There was an earthquake, and the mountain moved. It actually split in two. And as a result of that miracle, many Muslims converted to Christ and a Christian church started meeting in the chasm created by the earthquake. You need proof? Here's some proof. Coptic Christians to this very day still fast for those three days in memory of that miracle. Secondly, the name of the mountain on the outskirts of Cairo, Egypt is Mokatam, which is Arabic for split in two. And a strong church has been meeting in that same location for over a thousand years. It's called Cave Church. You can Google it when you get home this afternoon. You can read about the miracle. You can see the images of the construction of an amphitheater where as many as 20,000 Coptic Christians gather for worship today. Look. As the number of believers began to grow, it became evident that the Zebulun would need a place to worship. And in 1986, when a workman dropped a rock to the ground and it fell into a natural cave, they knew that God had answered their prayers. Father Simon personally supervised the moving of centuries of rubble that lay in a cave carved out by the pharaohs, who had used Makwatam rock to build the Giza pyramids. Many rebuked him for working so passionately and mocked him with questions of whether the stones mattered more than souls. But Father Simon was simply preparing a place that would one day seat over 20,000 people. He was on a mission with God, and his every decision was taken in simple obedience. Well, it's a little like Crossroads on Sunday morning, doesn't it? Those are your brothers and sisters in Christ, Coptic Christians. So you see, I have no doubt that God can literally move a mountain. But if that's all Jesus meant, we can't apply it much here in southeast Indiana because <laughs> we don't have any mountains. But don't ignore this parable because there's a powerful application in it. Here it is. When you face a mountain of challenge... The miracle of faith in God and prayer to God can move it. You may be staring at a financial mountain this morning. You don't think you're ever going to be out of debt. 
You may be staring at a relational mountain. Your marriage is on the rocks, or you don't think you'll ever find the right person to marry, or you can't seem to get along with someone in the workplace. Or, or you might be facing a physical mountain, a sickness you just can't get over, a high-risk surgery you need to have, a weight problem you want to overcome. Let me pass on three practical mountain-moving tips from this text. First of all, speak to the mountain, not about it. It's interesting what Jesus says in this text. He doesn't say, talk about your mountain to other people. And he doesn't even say, pray about your mountain. He said, you can speak to the mountain and say, go, throw yourself into the sea. And that may sound a little foolish to you, but that's what Jesus did more than once. He told disease what to do. He told death what to do. He told demons where to go. He spoke to the wind and the waves and said, Calm down. And he cursed the fig tree. And you remember he told the disciples the same thing he did to the fig tree they could do to the mountain. Now, you see, the more you talk about the mountain to others, the bigger it gets. And listen. If you don't speak to the mountain, the mountain will speak to you. In your quiet, reflective moments, you'll hear the mountain's voice. You can't get past me. You'll never feel better. You'll never get on top of your bills. You'll never kick that bad habit. No one will ever want you. The mountains talk to us. So try speaking directly to the mountain. And you don't have to yell. You just say in faith. Listen, Mountain, there is not enough room for both of us in my life, so you move on out. Speak to the mountain. And focus on God's power, not the mountain's size. The Bible is loaded with stories of people who faced mountains. And those mountains were often disguised as difficult people. I mentioned David last week. He faced, he faced a mountain of a man named Goliath. <laughs> but young David spoke to the giant. And you can read the whole speech in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It is impressive. Here's a little bit of it. David spoke to Goliath before he ran to the battlefront. And he said, you come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. You can read the rest of it sometime. Quite a speech. See, the other soldiers were saying, look how much bigger Goliath is than me. David was saying, Look how much smaller Goliath is than God. And the soldier said, Goliath is too big for me to fight. And David said, Goliath is too big for me to miss. So go on. You tell that mountain about the size of your God. And then thirdly, God may not want to move the mountain. He might want to move you. Instead, change your perspective so that mountain looks more like a molehill. It's one way to move the mountain. You just shrink it down to nothing. When you speak to a mountain, 
It might not move immediately. Keep speaking to it. It may take time. But it may be that you're facing a mountain that you have helped to construct, a mountain of fear, a mountain of anger, a mountain of shame, a mountain formed by your bad choices. So perhaps God will move you to a different vantage point so the mountain looks different. He might not remove the mountain of sickness, but move you to a greater dependence on His power and a deeper prayer life. And He might not remove the heartache, but He might move you to discover that He is your friend that will never fail. He is your comfort. And He might not remove your regret, but He might move you to experience His grace. In Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul faced a mountain he could not move. He wanted to go into Asia Minor, but he faced opposition and he faced difficulty. God didn't move the mountain. So what did he do? He moved Paul. So what happened was Paul did not take the gospel into Asia. He took the gospel to Greece instead. And for the first time, the gospel penetrated what we now call Europe. And as someone with German ancestry... German background, I'm glad God moved Paul instead of moving the mountain. All this to say, you'll live without regret. If you are fruitful, you will live without regret. If you are faithful, will you stand with me for prayer? Father God, Lord in heaven, we say with the psalmist this morning, search me, O God, search my heart, O God. Find out everything about me, cross-examine me, test me, get a clear picture of what I'm about. Help me to have that clear picture. See for yourself, Lord, whether I am fruitful and faithful, and then gently Gently guide me, lead me on the road to eternal life. Father, we all do pray with the psalmist. We pray that prayer. We don't want to just have leaves. We want to live fruitful lives. And we don't want to be dominated by the mountains in our lives. We want to demonstrate mountain-moving faith and prayer. So we recommit our lives to you, Lord to live like victors, conquerors, because that's what you have made us. In Jesus' name, amen.